Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and a planet and about sustainability. Our big interest is in ways that we can use modern scientific techniques to improve the food supply, especially for the food insecure. And one of the big interests in the podcast is exploring some novel fruits and vegetables to better familiarize ourselves with where they came from and where they're going in terms of their genetic improvement. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite fruits, mangoes. And we're talking with Dr. Emily Warshevsky. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of British Columbia. Uh, hi, Emily. Hi. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to have you aboard. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited because you actually did your uh, last degree, your PhD, here in Florida, not at University of Florida, but at Florida International University and in conjunction with um, the Botanical Gardens, Fairchild Botanical Gardens. Can you talk a little bit about what you did during that time? So I did my PhD at FIU and worked very closely with Fairchild Botanic Garden. And my project focused on the evolution and domestication of uh, the mango and other species that are closely related to mango, the whole genus Mangifera. And, and what is in Mangifera other than mangoes? I mean, anything that we recognize from food or uh, from, uh, you know, uh, tropical fruit crops? So you probably aren't familiar with many of the other species that are closely related to mango unless you have traveled in Southeast Asia. Um, most of these species are not cultivated outside of um, tropical Southeast Asia, but there in that region, some of them are actually very popular fruit crops and are, you know, kind of locally cultivated and really some of them are quite delicious even. Yeah. Can you give us a couple examples? I mean, you know, maybe there's something that I might recognize. Sure. Um, one of the really popular species is uh, Mangifera cesia. And within, it's grown mostly in Indonesia and Peninsular Malaysia. And it's called um, Binjai there. Um, so it's actually fascinating. It doesn't really look that much like a mango. It looks more like a, it's kind of pear-shaped and oh. oftentimes brown or bright green on the outside. So it kind of looks like a pear even. Um, and I haven't actually had the chance to taste it, which is really unfortunate, but it's supposed to have quite a nice flavor, kind of a sour, sweet flavor. Okay. That's a good example. I mean, something I absolutely have never heard of, but I've become more and more interested in tropical fruits and fruits in general uh, through my appointment here at the University of Florida. Uh, we worked mostly with strawberries, but in looking at our catalog of potential crops that could be used in the future here in Florida, I'm really sensitive to those opportunities. And uh, we've got folks down in Homestead who are doing a lot of work in those areas. And so I'm always interested. But but the whole 
podcast today really is supposed to be about mangoes. It's something that I'm really uh, interested in just because I love the fruits so much and my bias shows. Um, so if we're talking about um, mangoes, you know, as a, as a f- type of fruit, why are they significant and, and why are they important um, to current, uh, you know, are there places where they're really important to regional economies or any modern relevance to mangoes? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think, you know, mangoes are, are kind of obscure to those of us who grew up in northern latitudes in North America. Um, I grew up in rural Michigan. I didn't actually eat a mango until I was in college. But if you travel to any tropical or subtropical region of the world and you bring up mangoes with people, their faces will light up. They love mangoes. And mangoes are really important economically and as a food source in most of these countries. And I think now as our world continues to globalize and people travel and relocate to new parts of the world, mangoes are just really increasing in popularity. Yeah, I know we do a lot of work here with post-harvest quality in mangoes because they're subject to some kinds of chilling injuries and a lot of issues with transport. And so to really get them and have one produced is really kind of a special thing. And to get them here in the state of Florida, for instance, where uh, maybe our industry could grow or benefit from research, you know, more understanding about the domestication and varieties available, it could be something that could be of great benefit to farmers going forward. Certainly, yeah. Um, There's a lot of work that is focusing on kind of these immediate agricultural applications for things like post-harvest fruit quality or different treatment methods. So mangoes that are imported into the U.S. actually have to undergo some sort of treatment to help control the spread of fruit flies. And so there's a lot of research targeted at, you know, these immediate impacts um, for marketing and production of the mango. But my research really has focused on trying to understand the history of mango and how it got to this point in terms of the genetic diversity and evolution. And then hopefully we can use some of that knowledge to help inform our cultivation practices and better understand how to use this diversity to our advantage. No, that's really exciting because especially because it's a tree crop, they take forever to grow new ones and forever to examine the genetics and improve the varieties. So having a firm handle on the traits that are available and where they came from and, and you know what people have selected over the years and, and what's present in the wild germplasm is really a great starting point. Well, let's go backwards. Where was mango first really domesticated or where does it occur naturally? So that's actually kind of an interesting question. Um, For most of our uh, recent history, we've been assuming that mango was domesticated in India because that's where we see the most variety um, in cultivated mango. There are many, many cultivars of mango that are grown in India, and it's uh, extremely popular there. Uh, India is actually the leading producer producer of mangoes in the whole world. But uh, when you start to look more at the both the morphological diversity and also the genetic diversity, we see that maybe there might be something more complex going on there. Um, and that's because 
we have two different kinds of mangoes. We have these Indian type mangoes and Southeast Asian mangoes. And my work has confirmed uh, kind of previous suspicions that these two different types actually represent sort of genetically distinct groups as well. And so um, we're not really sure why that is. There could be a number of reasons, but it could indicate that mango was perhaps domesticated multiple times or was domesticated in Southeast Asia and then relocated to India. But we do know that mango has been cultivated in India for around 4,000 years. So it's actually a pretty old domesticated tree crop when you look at, when you compare it to other domesticated trees. And are the wild mangoes, um, do they possess a lot of the same quality fruit uh, traits that we really find appealing? Or are they, uh, you know, kind of sad things? Do they take a lot of work to get it from uh, a, a wild state to something that's really sweet and flavorful? So that's a question that we don't actually have an answer to. And I think one of the most surprising things to me as a researcher um, is that we don't actually know where currently living wild populations of mango are. Or we think that these uh, trees originated in the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, so that would be northeastern India, Bangladesh, Nepal, um, northern Myanmar. But uh, in terms of any information about recent surveys that have been done or, or um, anything, there, these, these individuals don't seem to be present in cultivation anywhere. Um, so we really don't have a reference point for what wild mango looks like. We do have, we have some other species that are closely related. Um, so for, based on those characteristics, we can kind of guess at what a wild mango might look like. Um, so there is a possibility that the actual uh, ancestral forms of this could even be extinct, right? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, for a while, the um, IUCN, which is this you know global conservation network, was listing mango as a uh, very uh, a species at risk of extinction. Now they have updated that status to say that it's um, it lacks data, which basically just means that no one has been looking for it. So I think that's a really important thing to consider. In a lot of our, our food crops, we don't actually know where the wild progenitor populations are or whether they still exist. And and they definitely still um, require conservation efforts because many of them come from places that are threatened by habitat destruction. And, and that's a really good point. There's so many expeditions over the years. We talked a lot about um, uh, Nikolai Vavilov on the podcast and work that he did and all of the yeah. other great explorations that went on to identify the sources of different crops. And, you know, it's these things exist in their ancestral form here in Florida we're in the cradle of where blueberry germplasm belongs. And with every new subdivision and every new snowbird that crosses the border, these things are imperiled. And there's not money or interest in creating 
um, efforts beyond, you know, you know, the USDA repositories and things to actually be able to, to, to identify and find new germplasm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sad when something like a tree that, you know, once it goes away, you don't have it back again. Exactly. Yeah. That's, it's a really important, um, part of understanding our history as, as people and how we have domesticated crops. But it's also important to our future and the future viability of these crops because uh, wild populations may have really important adaptations that could be used to expand cultivation ranges or improve um, disease resistance. And if we lose those, um, those adaptations will be gone forever. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And especially when there's no um, moving laterally from side to side, there's not that many crops that are similar. So it's not like down the road as we begin genetic engineering or uh, gene editing, that kind of stuff. You can't just engineer in a resistance gene or something like that because you don't have a source of it. And, and that's, um, that's one of the reasons that we get excited about conservation efforts and making sure that as we're entering really what is an explosion of potential for uh, technology to influence these things, we get, we have to have a template to work from and, and that could be gone or threatened. Yeah. So what about um, other um, interesting uh, stories about domestication? Were there any, anything from the literature or from antiquity that tells us about mangoes and maybe how they moved around once they were uh, domesticated? We believe mango was domesticated at least 4,000 years ago in India. And this is based on evidence from stone carvings at religious sites within India. So a lot of these temples and and sites within the region depict um, mangoes on different uh, and other fruits as well, but mangoes are clearly prevalent there. Um, and then this domestication is, uh, timeline is also based on linguistic evidence and tracing the name of the mango back in time to see where it first appears in literature. So after it was domesticated, uh, the first evidence of it being dispersed into a new region was actually from India into Southeast Asia. And that was quite, quite a long time ago compared to the rest of the movements. Mango was introduced in, from India into Southeast Asia uh, between the 4th and 5th centuries before Common Era. So quite, quite a long time ago. But it wasn't until about the 9th or 10th centuries that mango kind of started moving westward out of India, first into East Africa, and then um, in the 16th and 17th centuries into Western Africa. So this was uh, just mango being transported by people through these common trade routes of the time. But as you know, mango is wildly popular in the Americas. Um, it wasn't actually introduced into the Americas until the early 1700s. So it's really only been in the Americas for about 300 years, which is, you know, not that long. Um, and funny enough, you know, you're in Florida and that's where I did my work. Florida was actually one of the last places in the Americas to get introductions of mango. The first record or the first uh, recorded introduction was in 1833. So, you know, it's a really quite a recent crop 
in this part of the world. Yeah, that's a but very common story, right? I mean, even our citrus trees that we think are, uh, you know, that are iconic here in the state and we think are the, uh, you know, things that have always been here uh, really are recent introductions and even strawberries and uh, strawberries too. And uh, so it's been a uh, mango in a way is um, has has had a little bit of time to to hang out here in the Sunshine State. And you mentioned the part about the artwork. And I've always been intrigued with artwork, not because I like art. I'd rather go (laughs) study the placemat at Denny's than go to an art gallery. But when I do go to art galleries, um, like I've been to the the Louvre, or as they say in Northern Florida, the Louvre, um, I've been there. It's fun to see European art from from the last 500 years, you don't see a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. You kind of see the same thing over and over again. And it's always grapes and things like that. You don't see a lot of, uh, you never see any of the modern fruits. And it really helps you appreciate how far we've come. Definitely. Yeah. Mango is one of many crops that have been recently introduced to to this part of the world. Um, but I think one of the really fascinating things is that despite it being a really recent introduction into Florida, Florida uh, kind of ran with it. And South Florida, where mangoes are still cultivated today, um, became a really important center of breeding for mangoes. So many of the most important, uh, globally important mango cultivars were bred in South Florida. Oh, that's really interesting. So we'll touch on that when we come back. We're going to take a short break and we'll talk a little bit more with Dr. Emily Warshevsky about mangoes and their domestication and their future. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll talk to you again in just a minute. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you've never heard of No Ideas Media, we make science and agriculture communications videos to be shared on social media sites like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. The videos are not bad, if I do say so myself, and they are pretty effective at communicating complex science and ag topics to the general public. But in order for them to reach the public, I need people like you to share the videos widely. I also need people like you to support No Ideas Media through Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding site, kind of like Kickstarter, but it works on smaller monthly donations. So if you'd like to help No Ideas Media continue the work that we're doing, please go to patreon.com backslash noideasmedia and consider being a patron. Thanks very much. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast today, talking about mangoes, one of my favorite fruits, with Dr. Emily Warshevsky, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of British Columbia. And um, what are you working on now, Emily? Um, I've actually switched gears just a little bit. I'm still studying crop domestication and using genomic tools to understand um, how the process of domestication shapes our crops. But I've actually shifted to sunflowers for now. That's cool. So I hope you join us in the future. I I think that if I was uh, a recent PhD graduate, I would be really interested in domestication stories because what we can learn from genomics is so cool. And and we have this great tools that allow us to answer all these old questions. And uh, I'd work on genomics of plants, but I'd also look at animals because just the domestication stories around animals are so many and and really interesting. And to put a molecular uh, proofing on it, to actually test 
the tales would be really exciting. So, you know, good luck to you on that stuff. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And that was one of the the things that was exciting about working with Mango was we had this um, idea that Mango was from India uh, and also, you know, that it was introduced into these new parts of the world. And we kind of wanted to understand how that shaped mango diversity and kind of verify, is, is that true? Do we actually see that pattern reflected in the genetics? And so in your, in your work for your, your doctorate degree, you dissected those patterns and that lineage and, and tried to understand this. Could you give us a little bit of idea of how a modern detective, what tools would you use to start to look at those uh, relationships and examine them carefully? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I start with leaf samples. So I, most people, I think when I talk about mangoes, assume that I am getting DNA out of the fruit, but it's actually much easier to get DNA out of leaf samples. So I collected leaf samples from uh, different mangifera species to ask questions about the evolutionary history, but then also many, many different mango cultivars, individuals of mangoes. Um, and I you know, took the DNA samples and I was able to use fairly recent developments in genetics, uh, which basically take a small, small pieces of the genome from all across the genome and you can uh, amplify those across individuals and compare. So this gave me uh, thousands of little bits of information from across the genome of each individual that we could use to compare these individuals and see how are they related to one another, um, do certain populations of mangoes. So I was looking at mangoes from different regions of the world. Do certain regions of the world have higher mango diversity than others? Um, so those are kind of the questions that we can answer. And then based on those answers of, you know, where is the mango diversity highest or lowest, or how are these populations related to one another, we can start to understand um, how the domestication and how humans dispersal of the mango has, has happened over time. And so you're not doing like whole genome sequencing. You're looking for maybe one ver one region which could be a hyper variable, or maybe a number of regions or specific genes, um, and that's the basis for your analysis. Right. So, um, in order to do whole genome sequencing, uh, you know, we we actually are just getting the first whole genome sequences of mango that are being finished up uh, by some folks at the USDA and a couple other international groups. Um, and so I was still using tools that are kind of, uh, available to crops and other, uh, animals and plants that, uh, you don't need to know what the sequence that you're looking at is. It's basically kind of just r almost randomly selecting parts of the genome. Um, and so some of those will be really variable and some will be less variable, but um, it's actually really useful because you can then use these to answer questions at, at different evolutionary timescales. Um, so you can look at population diversity, and you can also look at 
diversity between species. And you also could use the certain markers to look for associations with traits that are of interest to breeders. And what are some of the main traits that people are breeding for when looking at improving modern mango? Yeah, so that's definitely um, something that we're still kind of working towards in mango and starting to get a foothold with associating particular genes with traits. Um, It's pretty, it's a difficult process, but um, some of the traits I think that breeders are really interested in, uh, the main ones, I think we've done a pretty good job at picking fruits that are tasty and um, the problem being, as we talked about earlier, getting those fruits to market. So there's traits associated with marketability and transport that are really important to breeders because they can grow the best mango in the world, but if they can't get it to market, what good is it to them? Um, but there's also traits associated with disease resistance. And there's also um, certain things with environmental tolerances. So in particular, salinity tolerance can be really important. And there's also a really interesting thing in mango these trees, if you just let them grow, will get to be very large. And so we don't actually have a, a dwarfing rootstock or anything like that available yet. So I think that's another thing that breeders are really looking for. And that kind of brings in this other side. We're, we're breeding not only for fruit characteristics, but also for, um, for traits that are found in the root systems in these rootstocks. Well, that would be extremely valuable. I, I would love to see a dwarfing rootstock, which you, which probably could get pretty easily just through mutagenesis. But my main trait that I'm interested in is cold tolerance because uh, I would love to have a mango tree in my yard, but I get two or three freezes a year and I don't think that it would stand a chance. Uh, is there any evidence of uh, cold tolerance in any of the wild germplasm? Yeah, well, that's the, that's the really interesting thing about this hypothetical uh, ancestral range of wild mango. It's supposed to be from what they call the foothills of the Himalayas. So that's actually more of a subtropical range to begin with. Northern India and Nepal and Bhutan, you know, those are not hyper-tropical. And so you would think that there has to be some sort of cold tolerance available in some of that wild germplasm if it still exists or That's, perhaps in some of these other closely related species that also grow there. Yeah. Just my luck. The trait that I need is extinct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm pretty, there are definitely at least one or two other species that are probably very closely related to mango that still grow there. We know that for sure. So maybe some of those could be used as rootstocks or, um, you know, hybridized with mango to help promote cold tolerance. I think that would be really great because I know a lot of people would love to grow mango. Well, how, how long does it take to grow a tree? Like if you were to plant uh, that big crazy seed, which is really interesting, plant that big seed, does it, and after it germinates, how long till it actually is a bearing fruit tree? That can vary. Um, my understanding, I, I don't actually grow mango trees myself. But my understanding is that, you know, the short timeline would be probably about five years from seed. Yeah. So that's, that's quite a while to wait. 
Um, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult to breed mangoes is this long time period. I, it can take longer than that, I'm sure, as well, seven years or perhaps even more, depending on conditions. Yeah, all right. I'll cross that off my bucket list then because I, I'd get a generation or two. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Well, that's really good. So going forward, what what's happening in the future of this? Are there national organizations or international organizations that promote the uh, growing and improvement of mangoes? Or is this kind of just a small number of maybe uh, USDA and a few other private breeders around the world? Uh, yeah. So actually in the U.S., based in Orlando, we have the National Mango Board. So this is a collective of people who are more on the um, agricultural side of things. Um, so this is mostly like producers of mango. But this is a board within the U.S. that promotes mango cultivation and is trying to make sure to get mangoes to market in new places within the U.S. and just help educate people about how to cut a mango which, you know, sometimes is quite <laughs> difficult for people to understand if they've never done it before. It has that big seed on the inside. Um, so they're a really fantastic organization. I think that that's doing some really great work. And then on the more research side of things, um, there is the USDA, and they have a great, some great projects going on with mango research. And there are other organizations similar to the USDA, DA or versions of the USDA in other countries, right? So Australia is, has their own version of the USDA, um, you know, their agricultural research uh, programs that are working on mangoes. And uh, there's also a great group in Israel that's doing a lot of work with mangoes. So it's uh, something that people across the world are interested in, definitely. Well, that's really good news. I, I know an, uh, the, the cutting the mango question is always a good one. And the way I do it, I cut the long way along the seed and then make like a grid with a fillet knife on. Yep. The, that's yep. that's and, like a checkerboard. Yeah. Make a checkerboard yeah. and then take the fillet knife and use it like you're skinning a fish and just cut the mm -hmm. skin off the mango. And then you get that, uh, these little cubes and, you know, the other interesting thing about this, uh, what do you know about that compound that's present in mangoes that causes rashes and, um, response like poison ivy? Yeah. So that's another really common question I get when I talk to people about mangoes. They're either, they either say, I love mangoes. They're my favorite fruit. Or they say, I'm allergic to mangoes. <laughs> um, and that's because, as you hinted at there, mangoes are in the poison ivy family. Um, so they are actually one of a few important crops. Cashews and pistachios are also in the same family, which is really interesting. Um, but they do have similar compounds to what we find in poison ivy in the skin of the mangoes, in the sap of the mangoes. Uh, so I actually do react to them myself. So I have to be very careful when I'm out collecting, I'll get a rash from the sap that comes out of the leaf stems when I pick them. In all of your travels and in all of your exposure to different types of mangoes, is there one that stands out in your mind as one that was exceptional in its flavor? The more I travel, the more I realize how, personal a question that is so every different region has their own mango that they think is 
the best mango. Uh, for me personally, I do really enjoy some of these, um, some of these Southeast Asian mango cultivars, uh, like, uh, Choka Nan is quite good and Namdak Mai as well. So they're great, but you know, the flavor profiles in Indian mangoes are also really excellent. And one of the big interests of the podcast is how we can use modern technology and just genetic improvement in general in the interest of sustainability. And if you think about everything you know about mangoes and its diversity and and where it is and where it's going, are there any particular ways that mangoes can help the, say, economic uh, sustainability of developing world farmers or the environmental sustainability or maybe have some social sustainability edges? Anything that comes to mind? I think, well, I'm not sure if this exactly answers your question, but I think that uh, mangoes are actually a very important food source in a lot of developing countries. Uh, A lot of countries that may have food instability and something that sticks out to me is a few years ago, I was reading an NPR story uh, and there was a quote from a woman in there who was in uh, a developing country and she was talking about some times of the year, all they had to eat for the whole day was mangoes from their mango tree. And so we shouldn't, you know, mangoes in the U.S. are kind of a novelty and kind of, you know, they can be kind of pricey sometimes. But we shouldn't forget that in many parts of the world, this is actually a really important food source, an important source of nutrients to people. And so there are things that we should be doing to uh, try to help improve productivity and cultivation in those countries. That's a really great point. And, and maybe even some genetic improvement in the West may have very important benefits for folks around the world. And that, that's really exciting. Definitely. So if people wanted to learn more about you and your program, maybe follow you on social media, where would they do that? Sure. Um, they can find me on Twitter right now. Uh, and that's just at Iwarshevsky. Uh, you should be able to find the spelling of my last name on this. And I'm also uh, working on a website right now that should be up and running in the next few months, hopefully. So I'll probably have some of this information and um, some of my uh, articles, both kind of popular press articles that I've written, as well as the more scientific journal articles available on there. That sounds great. Well, M- Dr. Emily Warshevsky, thank you so much for joining me. I learned a lot from the episode, and I look forward to going home and eating a mango I was saving for today. So thank you very much. Excellent. Well, enjoy that mango. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Share it with a friend. Talk to people about fruits and their domestication. And help share the beautiful ideas that scientists can give us and uh, how we're able to improve fruits for people and a planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and thank you again. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.